And we'll begin reading with verse 24. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Would you pray with me again? Lord, we do thank you for allowing us to gather in this place today that we may, as one body, look to your word. God, you have given us your inerrant, infallible, inspired, holy word. We trust you. We stake our lives on these words. Lord, I pray that your word would do its work in our hearts today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in me and through me and in the hearts of all those who hear this morning. That we may all be changed by the power of your word through your Holy Spirit. Lord, for those who do not yet believe. Open their eyes that they may see. And put their trust in Christ alone. And for those of us who have believed on you. Who have experienced the gift of salvation. May we go on believing. May we go on living this life in Christ. That others through us may believe. Be honored in all that is said and done this morning. In Jesus name. Amen. We're nearing the end of John's gospel. In fact, the passage we just read would have been a fitting close uh, to the book. But we find, as we looked last week, that the disciples have gathered once again in a room. And last week, it was the day that Jesus had risen from the dead. And that evening, they had locked themselves in a room, afraid of the Jews. They had heard that Jesus had risen. Some had seen him. 
And if word got back to Rome or to the Jews that this man whom they accused of starting an insurrection, trying to take the place of Caesar, and they had put him to death, if the disciples are claiming that he's alive, they feel that their own lives are at risk, that they're the ones that they're going to come after next. But as they're gathered in this room, they're afraid the doors are locked. Jesus comes and stands in their midst. We don't know how he got in there. Maybe he had a key. Maybe he walked right through the door like a normal person. I like to think that he either walked through the door or just poofed right into the middle of the room. I don't know how it happened. I don't know what the resurrection body is like. But Jesus, though the doors were locked, is now standing in the presence of the disciples. And the first thing that he declared to them was peace. They needed that. He probably scared them. (laughs) They needed peace. Peace also was just a standard greeting. Hello. But more than that, I believe that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, He is communicating to them that they really do have peace. Peace with God. He showed them His hands. He showed them His side. They were glad. Their sorrow had been turned into joy. And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. They're given this commission, this command to go out just as Jesus came to make the Father known. So the disciples are to go out and make Christ known. He gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit. It really was a wonderful, beautiful time of rejoicing. All the disciples were there except Thomas. We like to beat up on Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. Aren't you glad that people don't do that to you? They take a trait that you don't like about yourself and tag it on to the beginning of your name. Uh, you know, I could be bad jokes, Jacob, you know, or uh, yeah, I don't know, something worse. You know, Peter, they didn't do that to him. You know, for the rest of his life, we didn't call him denying Peter. But for some reason, it sticks with Thomas. He's easy to pick on, maybe because we're a lot like him. Um, But we have Thomas, verse 24 says, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. We call him Doubting Thomas because really in every account that Thomas shows up, even in the Gospel of John here, he is uh, something of a pessimist, seeing the, the dark side of everything. One uh, Bible scholar called Thomas the pessimist of the apostolic band. And that really is true. I think he had some blend, though, not just of pessimism, but it it mixed occasionally with a bit of courage. You see, in John chapter 11, when the disciples found out that Lazarus had died, Jesus said, let's go back to Judea. Jesus was going to go back to see Mary and Martha, and as we know, to raise Lazarus from the dead. But the thing that we tend to forget is Jesus had just left that area because they were going to stone him. The, the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees was heightened. They were ready to kill him on the spot. He left for that reason. And now he's saying, let's go back. The disciples really weren't on board with that. But when Jesus says, we're going back to Judea, Thomas says, Let us go also that we may die with him. (laughs) The pessimist, right? But but there is a measure of courage. There's a measure of loyalty that is there. He's ready to go with Jesus back to Judea. 
He's ready to go back for whatever work Jesus is going to do. But he does see the glass is half empty. Let's just go back and die with Lazarus. Let's go back and die with Jesus. In John chapter 14, Jesus told the disciples, Where I go, you know, and the way you know. It's been a great discourse up to this point. But then Thomas chimes in and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, I'm glad he asked the question because then we got the answer. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But what we see in Thomas is he's a, he's a pragmatist. He's only thinking so far as he can see. His eye of faith, as we like to call it, is still rather dim. He was loyal to Jesus. He loved Jesus enough to want to make sure he knew exactly where Jesus was going, but he lacked the spiritual sight to see what Jesus was teaching. And then when we get to chapter 20 here, we find that Thomas is not in the room with the disciples, and we can't help but ask ourselves the question, why? The disciples were gathered in one place. They had locked the doors because they were afraid. So before we beat up on Thomas too much for being Mr. Doubter, consider too that maybe he wasn't a fraidy cat like the rest of the disciples. Maybe he said, well, y'all go lock up in the room if you want. I'm going on with my life. Maybe he was a little courageous. Verse 25 says, The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. The word said there is an imperfect verb. Basically, it's a, it's a continuous action. They were continuously saying to him, we have seen the Lord. Yeah, Thomas, I'm telling you, we've seen the Lord. Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He's not listening. So they keep repeating themselves one after the other, trying to persuade him that Jesus is alive. As a, a side note here, that's a good indication that we see the disciples bearing witness to the resurrection. Jesus had just said, as the Father sent me, I send you. So they are bearing witness that Jesus has risen from the dead. They are giving that testimony that they have seen the Lord. And their witness began with those who were closest to them. With one of their own, one of the twelve. And I think that can easily be applied to us when it comes to our witness. We are commanded just as the disciples to carry the message of Jesus, to preach the gospel of his death and burial and resurrection to the world. And we need to focus on taking it to the world. But I think first, we need to take it to those who are closest to us. The gospel needs to go home before it can go across the globe. How can we expect to be faithful to take the gospel to another county or another state or another nation, maybe even another continent, if we haven't been faithful to live and preach the gospel in our own home. Parents, that, is, that specifically applies to us. We have children that have been given to us. They are in our care and we come to church and we can give to the missions offerings and we can support the work of missionaries maybe even go on some trips ourselves. But if we do not share the gospel, if we do not bear witness to what Christ has done for us through His death and resurrection in our own homes, 
the rest really is in vain. Thomas, the rationalist, refused to believe for as far as he could see, there was a lack of evidence. Yes, I I hear you. You're saying you've seen the Lord, but I haven't seen him. He has these conditions that he's placed on the disciples of physical sight, physical touch. It's almost crude the way he says it. He says, unless I see in his hands the prints of the nails, unless I can put my own finger in that nail hole. Unless I can put my hand into his side. That's kind of gross. I mean, he may be that he just doesn't believe and he's an overreacting type of person. He's going to overstate what he means. But the point is this. He says, unless I see him, unless I can touch him, I will not believe. In Greek, that's a, a double negative. It's emphasized. I certainly will not believe. It's out of his mind that it's even a possibility that he will believe. That is a fairly typical response. And people aren't walking around saying, I want to stick my finger in Jesus' nail holes or my hand in his side. But they still demand and insist on some kind of physical proof. Folks say, well, how can I believe in Jesus? I've never seen Jesus. How can I believe in God? I've never seen God. And I mean, the argument really doesn't make a lot of sense because I never met Abraham Lincoln. Or George Washington. Or Columbus. If we can still talk about him. But I'm confident that those men existed. And that they did the things that is said that they did. Because there's a record of it. The evidence is there. The nation exists as it does. So I believe they were here. That they were real men. Folks, if you don't think there's any evidence that there's a God, you're not standing on the same planet I am. Every blade of grass, every star in the sky, every leaf that falls from a tree screams that there is a creator. Stuff doesn't just happen like that. Even if I did buy into the idea that these little particles of dust in space you know, rubbed together just right and exploded and here we are, where'd the particles of dust come from? Creation demands, logic demands that there is a creator. But more than that, we have a record. We have a reliable, proven Record. It has stood the test of time. You think by now, a couple thousand years, if there were genuine problems with this book, we would have found them. Thomas says, unless I see him, unless I put my finger in his hands and my hand in his side, I will never believe. Remember when Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus died, was carried into Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and opened his eyes in torment. And he spoke to Abraham and he said, I've got brothers. 
I don't want them to come here. Send Lazarus back and let him tell them about this place and where I am so they don't come to hell. And what did he say? He said, they have the law, the prophets. They have, in other words, the word of God. And if they won't believe the word of God, they wouldn't believe even if someone rose from the dead. Jesus did rise from the dead, but all those people who demand the evidence refuse to see it. They will not believe. Thomas had every reason to believe there was an empty tomb. (laughs) Explain that one. Well, it was grave robbers. What about the grave clothes? What about the folded napkin? There was the witness of the angels. They told the women, he's not here. He is risen just like he said. He had the witness of the disciples and even the women. The evidence for God and for the truthfulness of his word. And in Thomas's case, the evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. Yet he refused to believe it. Verse 26 says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Now, this was the following Sunday, uh, the way they counted days. A lot of times they counted the day that it was. So if you count that Sunday to the next Sunday, they say eight days, but they mean a week. That's how you get Jesus rose on the third day. Yet he was buried on Friday and rose on Sunday. They count a little differently than we do now. But the setting is identical. The disciples are gathered. It's it's one week after. It's exactly the same. The disciples are gathered. The doors are shut. The doors are locked. Jesus appears once again and greets them with the exact same words. Peace be unto you. There's only one difference in this scene. Thomas. Thomas is there. It's as if Jesus reset the stage just for Thomas. Just so the doubter would believe. He would lose none of his, didn't he say? Save Judas, the son of perdition. He would do whatever it took to bring Thomas To a point of faith, a point of believing. Jesus wanted him to hear the same proclamation of peace, not just pop in the room and say hello, but peace. I really died. I'm really alive. Now, because of me, you have peace. Peace with God, peace in your own soul. In verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. He knew exactly what Thomas had said. 
fully aware of Thomas's objections and he met them head on. Thomas, you want to put your finger in my hands? Here it is. You want to put your hand in my side? Come on. Whatever it takes for you to believe. This was a personal calling. We know that Jesus came to Peter personally, right? He had denied him. It makes sense that Jesus would go to him and reassure him that he was still one of his. He met the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. They didn't believe at first. They said, where have you been? Haven't you heard? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened? Jesus died. And he taught them from the scriptures everything concerning himself. He met them where they were. He gave them a personal encounter so that they would believe. Last time we looked at Mary. She's at the tomb. She's convinced that his body has been stolen despite all the evidence. And he comes to her, says, why are you weeping? And she says, if you know where his body is, I'll come get it. And what did he say? He just called her by name, Mary. She turned around, teacher. It was a personal visit from Jesus so that they would believe. Each one of us who has heard the gospel and believed did so because we were personally confronted with the truth about Jesus and he called our name. Some of you may be being confronted even now. Salvation, a relationship with God, believing in Jesus for who he says he is, is a personal experience. You know, I grew up hearing people say it all the time. You can't go to heaven on your your parents' coattails, right? You've heard that saying. And you can't. It doesn't matter what your grandpa believed. It doesn't matter what your mom believed. It doesn't matter what all your siblings believe. Your friends. The one question you have to ask yourself is, have you had a personal encounter with Jesus? Has the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin, showed you of your standing before God, your need of a Savior? And have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus alone? It's personal. Just like Jesus came to Thomas. And here's the massive imperative that Jesus said to Thomas, and I say it to you do not be unbelieving. But believing. You know, we've got the word theist and atheist, right? You couldn't have the word atheist without the word theist because it's just got the A at the front. It negates it. God and no God. What John says here, or what he records, Jesus says here, is that same kind of play on words. He uses the word pistos, faith, believing. He says, do not believe a pistos. But pissed off. He just tacked the A on the front. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28, his immediate response, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You know, the scripture does not tell us that Thomas took Jesus up on his offer 
and put his fingers in the nail prints or his hand in Jesus' side. Those former conditions that he had placed upon his own belief, he had forgotten. They were cast aside. Thomas sees Jesus and instantly believes. And then he makes what we might call the highest confession of faith that any of the disciples ever made. We praise Peter for his confession, and we should because it was a good one. Jesus said, who did men say that I am? They said, well, maybe one of the prophets, maybe Elijah, maybe John the Baptist. But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And boy, was that a good confession right on the money. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God and that he is one with the father. He is of the same essence as the father. Jesus is called in this book, the lamb of God. He's called Christ. He's called the son of God. He calls himself the son of man. But when Thomas sees the resurrected Christ, he proclaims that highest of all confessions. And he says of Jesus, my Lord and my God. Now, if you read the book of Acts, there was an instance where Paul and one of his companions went into a city to preach the gospel and they had healed some people. And having healed the people, the, the people of the town, idolaters as they were, believed that Paul and his companion were gods. They started calling them Zeus and Hermes. These men must be gods. And Paul said, hold up. We are men just as you are. And then he preached to them about Jesus. On more than one occasion in Scripture, Old and New Testament, angels appeared and men who saw the angels fell down on their faces to worship and the angels refused to be worshipped because glory belongs to God alone. But when Thomas makes his declaration, Jesus, my Lord and my God, there is nothing that Jesus says to correct him. Jesus accepts this worship from Thomas. If Jesus had not been himself God in the flesh, when Thomas said this, he could have done the same thing as the angels. He could have done the same thing as Paul. But no, he stood and he accepted his worship because Jesus is our Lord and God. This is the confession of all who believe. When you became a Christian, you may not have said it exactly like Thomas, but you have to believe this. Notice that it's personal. He says, my Lord, my God. It's that personal experience with Jesus. He says, my God, he is deity. 
We give glory to God for all of His creation. We look at the stars in heaven. We look at the fields. We look at the mountains. And we can say, wow, God is magnificent. He is worthy of all praise and worship because He has done great things. Let me tell you, Jesus is worthy because He is God. He was the agent of creation. He is the one who gives you life and breath and causes your heart to continue to beat even now. Jesus is God. But then you have that declaration again of submission. He is my Lord. For one to be saved, we must believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he is God incarnate. And we must submit to him as our Lord. Salvation is not a fire insurance policy. You can go forward at the end of a church service and pray a prayer and get baptized and you're good to go and you can go live your life however you please after the fact. But I'll tell you this, that if you have truly believed, if you have seen Christ for who he is, repented of your sins, put your trust in him. If you are a Christian, you will make him your Lord. Actually, you will submit to him as your Lord. I made an error that I hate when people make. We don't make Jesus our Lord. He is your Lord. You must submit to him as your Lord. Jesus accepted Thomas's worship. Thomas made that confession that we all must make. He is our Lord. He is our God. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Thomas made the highest confession of faith, but his faith was not the highest expression of faith. He truly believes. He really trusts that Jesus is who he says he is, but it took him seeing it to believe it. Jesus doesn't criticize Thomas. He affirms that he really is a believer. But it took seeing. Now we tend to prefer seeing, don't we? We like to have the physical evidence. How often... Or how many of us have at some time or another prayed that the Lord would give us some sign? Lord, I know what your word says. I know what the Bible says. But if you could do something special for me to show me that what you say really is true. In reality, when we ask for a sign or for a miracle or we ask for something from God to prove that he really is telling us the truth... We are asking for less than the best that God has for us. Because it is better to believe without seeing. Jesus pronounces a greater blessing from God to those who have believed and have not seen. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed Jesus pronounced a greater blessing, a blessing beyond what the disciples received on us. The disciples had plenty of blessings. They did get to see the resurrected Christ with their own eyes that we can't diminish how great that must have been. But there is a special blessing 
that they have not received that is offered to you and to us. He pronounces a special blessing on those who believe without seeing. I can't help but wonder if this is what Peter had in his mind when he wrote his letter years later. 1 Peter 1 says, Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is a special blessing, a special joy for those of us who have believed, though we haven't yet seen Him. Because we know that we will. And then John appears to be wrapping up the book. He gives these last couple of sentences, verse 30. And truly... Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. The disciples were witnesses to all of Jesus' works. No doubt they talked about these to the people that they knew. But John didn't include everything in his book. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they didn't record everything in their books. What is written in this Gospel has been selected, it has been chosen for a very specific purpose. Verse 31, but these are written that you may believe. Who is the you? Whoever reads the book. This is uh, John's uh, extended gospel tract. He's been bearing witness to all that Jesus has said and done. And he comes to the end and he says, but these are written. I chose these miracles. I chose these signs. I chose these stories to put in the book that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing in Him, you may have life in His name. They are written. It has been written and it still stands that we may believe. The record bears witness that Jesus truly is who He claimed to be and it is an accurate record. Though you haven't seen Him The call to you is the same as it was to Thomas. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Believing is not without a purpose. He says in that believing you may have life in his name. That's what the whole book has been about, right? All along, John has been wanting us to find our life in Jesus. Chapter 1, he said, in him was life and life was the light of men. In chapter 3, he said, For God so loved the world that whoever, or that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He's repeatedly said it I came that they may have life. Will you believe in Jesus? Will you submit to him as your Lord and God? Will you receive the gift of life? Will you receive the promise of blessing in verse 29? Blessed are those who believe without seeing. For those of us who have believed, will you go on believing? This book is not just for unbelievers, but it's to strengthen and encourage and motivate you who have already believed. Will you desire and strive like John to lead others to this same life 
the life that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a fitting end to the gospel. But there's one more chapter, an epilogue, if you will. And we'll consider that the next two Sundays. Would you stand and pray with me? Lord, again, we thank you for your word. That you did come to bring us life, to give us life and life abundantly. Lord, I pray that if anyone here has not yet received that gift of of life, if they have not yet believed on the one whom they have not seen, may that miracle take place in their heart today. Lord, for those of us who have trusted in you, who have believed and been saved, encourage us, motivate us to keep on, to keep on believing, to keep on in this life that we have been given. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.